So the couple stood together, hand in hand, with their eyes closed, ready for the big reveal. They'd told the designers which bits of furniture they wanted to be kept, and they'd talked also about the, the colour plans for, for the new arrangement. And they'd spent nine days in a nearby hotel while the DIY SOS team got busy on their house. And now it was the time for the big reveal. They were told to open their eyes and their faces beamed and the tears flowed. It was their old familiar home with all the furniture they'd had since they got married all in the same places. Yes, there was a lick of paint on the walls, new colour scheme, the carpets had been cleaned, but it was oh so familiar. It was their own dear home. I want to talk about, well not that particularly, that might come in a bit later. You may catch on as we read together, first of all, in Luke chapter 5. And the last section, beginning at verse 33. They said to him, that is, uh, those who came to him, which uh, we are told are John's disciples. Uh, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says, the old is better. <laughs> this is from the earliest days of Jesus' public ministry, before even he's collected together the twelve who will be his closest followers. And the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all record this. Matthew 9, Mark 2 and Luke 5. And they remind us where, the, where they, um, as they put this uh, in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, that he had been rejected first in his own hometown. He'd gone to Nazareth, but 
they had rejected him because, as far as they were concerned, he was just the local lad who seemed now to have got airs and graces. But now that he was coming under greater scrutiny as he went from place to place, teaching and gathering a crowd and gathering followers. His call of Levi, or Matthew, had led to a celebration, a party with all uh, Matthew's friends to celebrate the fact that he was now going to leave his old life and go and follow Jesus. But that had only led to censure. The religious leaders looked on what happened and they despised him. They branded these people that he uh, attached himself with as just tax collectors and sinners. And that led to criticism over other matters too. Not only who he associated with, but here in this case, um, the fact that he wasn't following practices like fasting. And also, in, in the next chapter recorded, we have problems over how he used to keep the Sabbath day. All the way, there were confrontations and difficulties that uh, came about as he began his public ministry. And Matthew, Mark and Luke all record this with just slight variations. And we'll use Luke's uh, base, uh, record for our own thoughts tonight. We have here a confrontation. They said that Jesus didn't encourage his followers to fast. Luke tells us it was John the Baptizer's followers who first posed this question. The other Gospel writers say it was some of the, the scribes and Pharisees. But they were all in it, in a sense, because they all wanted to know. The baptizer had his followers, and they were curious to know what was different about what John had called them to in a life of, of to show that they had turned away from sin and to God, and what Jesus required of his followers. John's ministry, John the Baptizer's ministry, had been one of calling people to turn away from sin and to turn to God, to show it through baptism and to show by a life of self-denial, which is often where fasting comes into the picture. And we all are familiar, I think most of us, with the, the Pharisees, with those the strictest observers of the Jewish law. Even though the law only required you to fast on one day a year, they would fast up to twice a week, as well as on special occasions. They must have had a fairly miserable um, existence as far as I'm concerned. But that was their practice, and as far as they were concerned, that would, that would gain them merit with God. But for Jesus' followers, there wasn't such a thing. They were criticised. They always seemed to be 
eating and drinking. Haven't they just been at Matthew's party? Isn't, is, is that the way to conduct yourself if, you're, if you claim to be following the ways of God? But Jesus counters the criticism and he makes reference to a party. He says, I'm like a bridegroom at a wedding. It's my party and I'm going to have my friends and we're going to celebrate. And why wouldn't we? Are we going to fast on my wedding day? Of course we're not. We're going to have a slap up meal. We're going to have a good time. And if you've ever seen Jewish men dancing at a wedding, you'll know what I mean. Okay, they really um, let their curls down, I was going to say, and uh, they, they look quite unusual. But of course the men dance together, keeping separate from the women. But they still have a great time. And Jesus says, well, that's, that's the situation here. I'm with them. I'm like the bridegroom among his mates, and why wouldn't we celebrate? But the time's going to come when they will fast. And in another place he refers to that period after his death when they were totally bewildered as to what was happening until he rose again. And they were totally bewildered by what had happened. <laughs> During that time, yes, they would have gone without food, they would have prayed earnestly, what does it, what's happening here? But again, after resurrection, it's a time of celebration, because the Lord is alive. And now we, by his Spirit, know he is with us, even now. Jesus has introduced... A new set of practices, which may include fasting, but not a big deal on fasting. He's more into celebration and enjoyment, because he is with us. There was an old way that people thought was the way to get right with God. And Jesus is saying, no, there is a new way. And I'm going to make that way open for you. And because I make that way open for you, if you follow me, you will enter into life and into blessing. You'll have eternal life, i.e. life now, at which will continue beyond death. Jesus gives two illustrations to clarify what he's saying. He would like to tell a bit of a story, didn't he? Or something to help them. I was going to say a bit of a yarn, but that is actually the first, first one, isn't it? Um, his first picture is drawn from the world, the experiences familiar to women. And the second one drawn from the more familiar experiences of men, <laughs> you know, treading the grapes and the like attempts to put a new patch onto an old garment are ill-advised. Now there's a slight difference between how Matthew and Mark <coughs> record this <coughs> from the way Luke does. 
And I'm sure that's easily explained. That I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus never said anything once, <laughs> but more or less repeated. If it's a good story, it's worth telling again, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And from time to time, he would go to different places. He'd give the same basic teaching, the same illustrations, but they might have just, it might have just been tweaked. He would say, I... I really got it in Capernaum, you know, I just added that little detail and it really got them listening. So I'll try that when I go somewhere else. And that's why we get those sort of slight variations, I believe. And Matthew and Mark talk about just putting um, a new patch onto an old garment. And what happens is that it will all pull and uh, things will, uh, the tear will only get worse. Now, I'm married to a trained teacher of needlework and handicrafts, which has its advantages. And uh, when the children were young, she used to make their clothes, she used to do dressmaking, until it became too, too expensive to actually do. Um, and uh, if she's going to make some new curtains, she'll buy new material. The first thing she would do is to sew onto it a 10 centimetre square, just loosely with cotton, and then wash it. And then measure that 10 centimetre square afterwards to see what percentage of shrinkage there has been. If it only shrinks a little, that's fine. Go on and make the curtains. But if it shrunk a great deal, hmm could be dodgy this one, so we'll wash it again and then remeasure and do that. I'm, I think we've only done it a couple of times, haven't you? At the worst, to uh, once. once. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, there we are. I've, I've, I've overstretched my <laughs> illustration, but it's to see whether the the material is is going to shrink. Now, if you make the curtains then, if you've got any surplus left over, then that's stretched as much as the material you've used for the curtains. So if you have to patch up, then you've already got a piece of unshrunk cloth to put on. There's a wisdom in that, isn't there? That's, that's what you get for training in needlework and handicrafts. Now, the illustration that Luke records is a little bit more extreme. He talks about taking a brand new garment and tearing a bit off and putting it on an old garment. Now, what's the sense in that? A perfectly good garment you ruin because you take a bit off and try and put it on an old garment and it doesn't match. It just doesn't make sense. You've destroyed everything there. Both, both the new and the old have both been destroyed. All of the writers of the Gospels agree on the details of the second one. You may or may not know, wine was kept in animal skins. A goat or a sheep was slaughtered. The head and the feet were removed and the innards, pardon this, were taken out through the holes. 
and then what was left uh, shaved the outside hair off turned it inside out and tied up the holes after of course the last hole after you would put in the wine and that held the new wine from the latest harvest and of course it would ferment and it would give off gas uh, but because of the, uh, the, the skin of the animal being fairly fresh it would have a certain flexibility, a stretchiness which meant that everything was fine. But were you to try and keep one of last year's wineskins to put in new wine then obviously the fermentation process would produce gas and the poor uh, wineskin would not be able to take the strain it would burst and you've lost the wine as well. There's no sense in it. Everything is ruined. Every new harvest needed a new container for it. What conclusion do I draw from these things? The coming of Jesus introduced a new way of relating to God. His practices were so radical that they clashed with those more conservative practices of the previous way. Every new harvest provides a new vintage. Every new work of God by his Spirit needs a new approach. Christians can be most guilty of holding on to old and familiar ways even when God is doing a new thing and it simply will not work. We must be ready to regularly examine what we are doing and why and how we are doing it and why. NCBC is entering a new phase with a change of leadership, not only Mark but there may be other changes too. Will you give them the flexibility as a new leadership team to operate in new ways? Or will you resist the change? Like the couple in my illustration at the beginning who actually didn't want a complete makeover they just wanted things to be brightened up a bit. Are we the kind of people who just want a fresh lick of paint on the wall, spiritually speaking, you know, shampoo the carpet so it looks a bit more presentable, but we're not into radical makeovers. We say, well the old is better. 
I like it that way. We've always done it that way. Brother Mark, you're going into a new situation. But there'll be people who will remember your predecessor. And they'll be saying, well, he never used to do it this way. Or, we've never done it this way before. You know? And they may not allow you the freedom to do what God wants you to do among them. So beware of that. <laughs> Be prepared for it. Quote this to them <laughs> if you need to. New, new wine must go into new wineskins. But in the way that you and I personally work out faith, do we get in a bit of a rut? Have we become too comfortable with our daily Christian walk? Now it's good to be in certain routines, but there are bad routines as well that actually stop us from moving on with God if he's calling us to do something else. But how would you recognise whether God was doing a new thing? How would you know? If you've got yourself just too comfortable, are you looking for what God might be doing? When Jesus was challenged about the way he was, was going about his ministry, he said this, in, it's in John chapter 5 and verse 19. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does. So Jesus' explanation of his, of his whole ministry was, I look to where I see the Father working. Is there a situation over here that appears to be some kind of movement, some difference, some change? What is doing that? Is it, in fact, God at work? Here's an individual that you know, and suddenly things are changing with them. There's a bit more spark about them. There's a bit more curiosity about spiritual things. Can you detect God at work and therefore say, because God has begun the work, that's where I must work. Here's a situation that has arisen in society. This is where there's a kind of a public outcry over something. Should I be in there with the Christian message? Where is God at work? And will we recognise it and, and put our own efforts behind it? New wine, which generally comes around every year, new wine must go in new wineskins. This year's vintage must be put in bottles with new labelling. Okay, there'll be someone who'll pay great price for something stamped, I don't know, 1785, which has never been opened. More than likely would be like vinegar if it was opened. But, but there's something about it, they're prepared to pay thousands for it. Is that what we want? Which will actually not be used? 
Now, new wine in new wineskins, new bottles. So that we respond to what God is doing today in appropriate manner. Or sadly, will he have to bypass us and look for someone else who is awake and alert to what he's doing and putting in their effort there. How flexible are you to what God is doing? Let's put new wine into wineskins and don't let's keep saying the old wine is better.